does beg the question, what has gone wrong with young Hollywood? Honest to God, what is the problem? Hello and welcome to season four of Lay Do You Remember This, where we look back on all the stories from Hollywood's best worst decade, the early 2000s. A time in history when America found out that with a trust fund, a sex tape, and a dream, you too could become a star. As always, I'm your host, Dara Lane. Last week on part 2 of the Bling Ring, we left off with the question, where are Alexis Nyers and Tess Taylor now? The short answer is that they're both sober, both have a husband and two daughters, and in August, Alexis posted a photo on Instagram of herself, Tess, and her little sister Gabby wishing everyone a happy National Sister Day. And yet, as of press time, neither Alexis, Gabby, or their mother Andrea follow Tess on Instagram or vice versa. But curiously, you know who does follow Tess? None other than Nancy Joe Sales. And Tess follows her back. How did that happen? What does this all mean? After Googling Tess and Alexis Nyers, not friends, question mark, and coming up with nothing, I realized I had a true blue mystery on my hands. I knew who to call. Olsen and Olsen Mystery Agency will solve any crime time. Unfortunately, their rates were out of my budget. I considered a GoFundMe, but ultimately felt that now is not the time to ask people for money for superfluous mystery solving. If I didn't figure this out, no one else would, and I knew what I had to do. I had grown up under the tutelage of Harriet the Spy, Shelby Woo, and Ghost Rider. It was time to fulfill my birthright and become a junior sleuth. I was ready. What did I find out? Obviously, I can't just tell you outright. This is now more of an I'll-be-gone-in-the-dark situation where I'll be weaving a tapestry of storytelling. So we'll start at the beginning, which I've been told is a very good place to start, a natural entry point. Alexis and Tess met sometime in the early 90s when they both attended the same dance classes. Here's Andrea on Alexis's podcast describing how Tess came into their lives. So I used to see this dad show up every week with this beautiful little blonde girl who was probably three and a half, four years old at the time. She's like three. Because I was two and a half, three. Yeah. She's just like a year that. older than I am. Right. Yeah. But, and Gabby so was, was in little. the stroller. Yeah. Gabby was still in the stroller. And I would watch this dad and he was there every day. At dance class. At dance class. And we would watch our little girls danced together through this huge bay window. And there was a lot of moms that were there and watching their kids. And then one day 
he's not there. And there's this gorgeous, beautiful, sexy, blonde woman standing in the bay window with these extravagant, long fingernails and an armful of jeweled, bangled bracelets and just... Oh my gosh. And this, these lips that were just huge. And I remember she used to always have that one tool in her purse and she would pull it out and she'd plop it on her lips and she'd pump him. And <laughs> oh my God, I didn't know that. Tracy's yes. such a trip. Oh my God. She would make her lips so big. It was just, it was, it's what we did. We didn't have, you know, I mean, some people like their lips big. Yeah. They weren't doing injections mm-hmm. back then that I'm aware of. Honestly. Tracy sounds like a fucking legend. She was running around Calabasas with a lip suction device before Kylie was ever born. We stan a legend who imparted years of trauma on her young daughter. But anyway, I remember her standing next to this beautiful, larger woman. And and she was talking, though, about how her husband was going to be so mad because she had just joined a dating service because her fiance was cheating on her with his former girlfriend. So she was married, she had a fiance, and she had just joined a dating service. And I was like, who is this woman, you know? And then it it, it appears that that's, that's Tess's mom. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. The next time I saw her, and I could go into more detail, but I think I'll pass at this point. (laughs) Yeah. But I remember one time I saw her at a a little Italian restaurant in our neighborhood and she had a neck brace on and she was wearing this beautiful buttercream suit. She looked amazing. And um, I said to her, are you okay? And I don't think she recognized me or remembered me, but I invited her to come to church with me. And that was the beginning of our relationship because she was at that time really needing connection and a spiritual foundation. And I, so we became fast friends. She was my alter ego. <laughs> so my mom, so a little bit of backstory about this, this situation though, my dad had been having an affair on my mom and left us. I was about a little over three and Gabby was like 18 months or two years old. Right. You were, you were actually about four. Okay. Yeah. So I was almost four. Gabby's like two and a half. We're like two years apart. And my mom so my mom's world is kind of crashing down and here comes this like project (laughs) tracy was the my mom loves projects we can get more into that later (laughs) she loves to fix people it's part of her problem um not anymore not anymore it's getting better for sure yeah and so Tracy was like a project and, um, and she loved Tess too. And so they would come over and I remember my, that you and Tracy would be in the garage, like making jewelry or beating pillows or whatever. They it were was. the craft like, moms. Yes. But smoking, smoking pot and, and drinking red wine. And, and the kids were like running around in the house naked, naked, like maniacs. Painting their, each other. Yes. Yeah. It, there was just <laughs> talk about like a free spirit <laughs> Smoking pot, drinking red wine, and crafting in a garage with middle-aged women on the verge is the only way I want to spend an afternoon. Just making dream catchers all day and listening to them talk about the men who were the catalyst of their wasted potential. But the dream of the 90s couldn't live on forever in Calabasas. Tracy was a wild child and her substance abuse was out of control and in turn, putting herself and little Tess in danger. 
Tessa's father got full custody of his daughter under the condition that Andrea would be there to share in taking care of Tess when he needed her help or had to go to work. Tracy disappeared from everyone's life for the rest of her daughter's childhood, and Tess switched between staying with her father and staying with Andrea for spurts of time. Tess found a new mother figure in Andrea who offered slightly more stability than her biological mother. Andrea was a former model who had her own traumatic childhood, which resulted in her leaving her home in Chicago when she was 14 to pursue a career. A 14-year-old out on her own modeling in the 70s? Honey, I don't want to know those stories. But also after two glasses of wine in the craft garage, I actually really, really, really want to know those stories. Andrea eventually became a Playboy playmate and started acting in bit parts for TV. And on the Showtime series Brothers, she met Alexis's dad, who was the director of photography. Alexis's dad, who was an addict himself, was on his way out of the house when Tess was on her way in. Although Andrea had a string of boyfriends before she met her next husband, she was largely on her own with these three girls and didn't know how to set boundaries for them. Despite growing up alongside some of the most wealthy people in the country, the family didn't have much money and the girls would rewrap their toys on Christmas so they'd have something to open in the morning. Andrea was obsessed with keeping up appearances, and instead of going on food stamps herself, she would make her ex-husband give her his. And that's the plight for a lot of people, especially models and actors in Los Angeles. Hollywood is a fickle mistress, and a lot of people get a taste of success and adoration, and then it never ends up progressing past a certain point. Some people throw in the towel and move home or get their real estate license, and others are always trying to get back in that place, chasing the dragon until they have kids and end up projecting their own dreams onto them. Which is what happened when Andrea realized that she had two little stars on her hands. Andrea transitioned into the role of momager, while her youngest daughter Gabby picked up the slack, forced to take on a more parental responsible role in the family dynamic. When the girls were about 14, Andrea took them to downtown LA to get fake IDs so they could take more adult modeling jobs. Tess's dad rightfully freaked out and she went back to live with him. It was around this time that Alexis had foot surgery after she sustained an injury in dance class. She was prescribed Vicodin and quickly became hooked on it and began skipping school. Sick of the nagging calls from the administration, Andrea withdrew her under the guise that Alexis would be homeschooled, which really just allowed Alexis to smoke pot and take painkillers all day. Then at 15, Tess came back to live with them, and according to Alexis's book, Recovering from Reality, Tess and her boyfriend introduced Alexis to smoking Oxycontin. Andrea was too busy managing their careers to notice or care that they were doing drugs, but they weren't exactly being sent out to go seize for Adelia's catalog spread. Andrea was setting them up to do shoots with creepy men she connected with through their Model Mayhem accounts. Now, if you don't remember Model Mayhem, it was like my space for amateur models. And I would say my two main hobbies in high school was musical theater and stalking my classmates on their Model Mayhem profiles. For a bit, Tess and Alexis were just posing topless for amateur photographers, but pretty soon they were booking some gigs. 
not anything particularly prestigious, but it put them in the same places as people higher up in Hollywood and the music industry. Like the time they were in a Marilyn Manson music video. They weren't exactly video vixens, they were one of like 30 girls wearing bikinis, Mickey Mouse ears, and blackface, which Alexis does own up to on the Instagram live show, baited with the fabulous comedian Z-Way, which if you haven't seen the show in general, you should, but the Alexis episode specifically is uh, something. The girls started meeting more and more celebs and power players and were becoming known as fixtures of the Hollywood club scene. The story that they told everyone they met was that they were twins in their early 20s. When Tess was 19, she dated Kid Rock for a summer, and around that time, Alexis went on a date or two with Sean Penn. Alexis says in her book, quote, Tess and I weren't poor teenagers from the valley thrown together through trauma and bad parenting. We were 20-year-old socialites who were trying to make it in the shadow of the celebrity kids who came before us. Paris and Nikki, Nicole Richie, and those Kardashian girls, end quote. But all that partying like rock stars caught up to them. They were hooked on opioids and using all the money they made on these gigs to buy more heroin and oxy. One of those small jobs would end up leading to something that would bankroll all the drugs they wanted. We touched on this for a moment in last week's episode, but Tess and Alexis booked small roles in a low-budget, straight-to-DVD movie called Frat Party, where they were to make out with each other while Tess was topless. On that set, they met a comedian named Dan Levy. Here he is on Alexis's podcast, talking about the day they met. <laughs> and you guys were there. Yeah. And basically what happened was you told me, or Tess told me, that your mom was... A former Playboy playmate. Yes, that that and, part was true. Yes, yeah, and that, that you guys the only truth. were sisters. Not true. Well, we said we were twins. Definitely not true. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Our whole thing. So here's how we got away with you know the Kid Rocks and the partying and like all of the stuff that we got away with back in that time. So because we weren't 21, we were 17 and 18. Um, or maybe 18 and 19. I think I wasn't 18 yet. I wasn't 18 until I signed right before we signed the contract with E. So I was 17 when yeah. I did that movie. It's I thought you like were like child 20. pornography. Um, so <laughs> it's horrible to say, but whatever. I mean, we had no boundaries in our household. So yeah, so Tess and I had this whole thing when we would go out and go to the clubs and do all the things that we were doing. That we were twins, fraternal twins, because it just spiced up our story a little bit, you yeah. know? So this was like our alter egos. And then we always said we were 20 because that way nobody would ID us. Like all of the club promoters and all of the people that we knew would just know, oh, they're not, you know, 21 yet. So we would just get kind of like shoo shooed into the back door or like slip the bouncer 100 to let us slip by. But we didn't have to make excuses all the time as to like why we didn't have an ID. Right. So then it just became like a story. So then we're doing Marilyn Manson music videos and we're doing all of this stuff and we're kind of becoming like the life of the party at all of these things based on this like really extravagant fabrication. Yeah. And then that's when I, <laughs> and 
cut to me meeting you guys. So then I yeah. meet you, and I think it was we were both talking, but but Tess was the one who was like, "Yeah, our mom is a former playmate. You know, we I want to be in Playboy, which was a real thing. Yes, she really wanted to be in Playboy. She really did, and she was like really bad. You know, we'd love to get on that show, The Girls Next Door. That was the E show at the time, The Girl Next Door. Mm-hmm. That, that was her dream. Yes, she wanted to be one of the one of Hef's girlfriends on The Girls Next Door, which is so disgusting. Right. So then, <laughs> so then she said that uh we also are homeschooled by mm-hmm. our mom mm-hmm. which I, is weird because we're 20 which is weird because you're 20 <laughs> but you know I, I was like half paying attention <laughs> and then it was like oh okay and then i thought i said well why would you want to be on the girl next door it seems like you guys are a reality show at that point i had no experience with reality tv all i i was hosting reality shows i hosted a show mm-hmm. on mtv you know i hosted like this andy dick show like i did a bunch of like random stuff but i was not at all like a reality producer <laughs> by any means so at the time i called my manager uh who also had no experience in reality tv and i said i think i found a tv show and you know he was like okay and uh and then basically we started having these meetings with you guys and no one knew really what we were talking about. We just were like, they seem like a show. I don't, I don't even watch the Kardashians, but I was like, they're like keeping up with the Kardashians. But it's funny because what I liked about you guys, even though you're lying to me, is that you were totally aware of how ridiculous you were. Even then, even yes. when you were on Strung and on yes. Drugs, which I also yes. didn't know. But like you were very aware. You saw the humor in the fact that your mom was homeschooling you. Yeah. You know, well, and- the whole thing was kind of like. So they shot a sizzle reel of what the show was supposed to be, homeschooled with the Arlingtons, where they make vision boards with Gabby and their mother by day and party by night. E bought the show and they were set to begin filming in October, but little did the producers know that the months before they got started, their subjects were falling apart at the seams. After spending their signing bonuses from the show on heroin, Tess and Alexis had been kicked out of the house and over the summer participated in a high-profile burglary or two. I remember when you were shooting the episode, the first episode, where the cops came for real. That was the second uh, well, that was the second day. Yeah, but the yeah. second day. Yeah, the second day. I remember I was at the chiropractor <laughs> in Beverly Hills, <laughs> and I got I, I got a frantic call from Amber, being like, "Dan, who are these girls?" And I go, "What are you talking about? They're cool." <laughs> and he's like, "He's like, she's like, no, 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 no. There's like li- f- fucking cops here. They're ripping open their their fucking." cars and they're they're ripping leather they're rummaging through their house there's helicopters you need to get here and i was like what this is not show business so i like get in my car and i'm like driving from belly hills to calabasas and i get here and i'm like it's true like you guys are getting pulled in the fucking cop cars and i was like what is going what on what happened uh, and then it kind of laughing so hard i feel like i get puked and then, and then we went and then i'm like look like i am i don't even know i'm like how old am I here? Like 27 or something? Maybe. Yeah, like yeah. 27 or 26. And I'm now like at the police station <laughs> trying to get you guys out of jail. And I'm like, I'm like going to like, you know, fucking like a college the next night to do stand up. And I'm like now like in the middle of this intense yeah. dramatic reality series. But it ended up being like the best thing ever. Wouldn't you say? Like you making like lemonade out of lemons. Like who kn- what do you think that show would have actually been like if it was just like homeschooled with the Arlingtons? It would have just been another boring ass Kardashian show. Well, especially because the whole setup was a lie. Yes. <laughs> like all your criminal friends I thought were real people. <laughs> like all these, like they, everyone was like, did you know they were burglars? And I was like, how would I know 
they're burglars. But and and then the the really fun stuff that we were doing too, like the Kid Rock stuff and all of that stuff. Like no, none of them would have agreed to come on our reality show. No. And Alexis is right. The stuff that they would have been doing on Homeschooled with the Arlingtons would probably get old fast. So it's a good thing that the producers rolled with the punches and changed the name of the show to Pretty Wild. West LA to Silver Lake, let me see those hips shake. Half the show seemed rooted in the plot lines that were previously planned, like Tess going on a random date with Ryan Cabrera. There was also still a little homeschooling. Today's lesson is about character development, okay? So in the movie The Secret, we're talking about law of attraction, and we want to be careful about the people we surround ourselves with because we become the average of those people. So what we're going to do here is we're going to create a visual board of people who are demonstrating good character, like Angelina Jolie. So what are some qualities you admire about Angelina Jolie? Her husband. <laughs> okay. Her hot bod. Okay, the bod is not a characteristic. How long do we have to do this for? You have to do it until you're finished with this, and then we're going to do some flower essence work, okay? But then the other, much more compelling plot followed Alexis through her bling ring legal saga. Pretty Wild has become a cult classic in the reality show Pantheon, and it really captures a moment in time. Filmed at the end of the year in 2009, it features the final gasping breaths of pop culture. In 2010, Ledoux would close. Everyone would have smartphones with high-res video cameras. Celebrities would trade club hopping where they partied amongst the plebes for the safer option of drinking at home in their mansions. It's an interesting rewatch 10 years later, both for the time capsule quality and the fact that you can place it in a whole different context knowing that Tess and Alexis were shooting heroin during filming. The show spans from Alexis's arrest to the publication of Nancy Jo Sale's Bling Ring article to Alexis taking a plea deal for her part in the burglary of Orlando Bloom's house. And in between, we're treated to gems like this scene in episode one with the girls and the musician Mickey Avalon. So the video with Kid Rock. Rock, bitch, it's on, huh, Mickey? We wrote that song thinking of him. And then really? the fact that he, like, wanted to do it was amazing. They have this new song called Rock, Bitch that's coming out, and I am dying to be the lead girl in it. Now we just need to make the video. Definitely, that's awesome. Yeah. But it's got to be about strippers. It's <laughs> got to be about rock chicks. So, uh, I was thinking, Mickey, maybe one of the girls could be in the video. It says in the song, sliding down from heaven on a stripper pole. And I was like, well, that's totally me. So, uh, how are you guys... After filming wrapped on that scene, according to Alexis's book, she and Tess stayed up all night with Mickey and his friends doing Xanax and heroin, which sounds like a feat in and of itself because I take a Tylenol PM and a White Claw and I'm asleep by 11. I can't imagine wanting to do anything on heroin other than lying in the middle of some plush carpeting while you listen to folklore, but I've never done it so I could be all wrong. By the end of filming, the producers became aware that the girls were on hard drugs and living at the Best Western in Hollywood. They found out about the heroine while they filmed an episode in Cabo where the girls were hosting an event. We're gonna go to Cabo. Oh my god, we're gonna go to Cabo. I thought you said it. No, 
No, that's not how I said it, actually. Three outfits a day yeah. for five days. That's 15. We need 30 outfits for the two of us. And, like, 20 bathing suits. Hi, girls. Hi. You know, we should go to the tanning salon, too. All right. So, you guys... I'm a little concerned. Um, did you guys talk to Jeff again? Um, you going out of the country? I'm sure it's fine. You should give him a call. That's his cell phone. Hello? Hey, Jeff. It's Alexis. Hey, Alexis. How are you? I got an offer to go to Cabo to do a charity event. I'd only be gone for a couple days. Cabo? Yeah. Jeff is just trying to be overly cautious. Like always. He didn't say no, so we're going to Cabo. I know, we are. But you do need to be really careful. Just hey. extra cautious. It would have been best if they just did the right thing and stayed in LA because behind the scenes, they were having a miserable time. One of the crew members somehow found their stash of drugs and flushed it down the toilet, sending them both into withdrawal. Tess could barely film, she was so sick, and Alexis had to find a Mexican pharmacy to buy whatever narcotic painkillers they had to try and mitigate her symptoms. With all that baggage, a second season was never in the cards. The series ends with a tearful Alexis bravely accepting her 180-day prison sentence. I realize that I have made some bad choices and for that I suffer the consequence. But if Buddha could sit under a tree for 40 days, then I can do this. I can do this. Truly a display of grace and character only exceeded by, uh, I want to say Nelson Mandela probably? Alexis serves a month of her prison sentence, and when she gets out, goes on a publicity tour of sorts. You know, it, it was, it was sobering. Was Lohan in there too? She was, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah so, and then I did a really fucked up thing, and I like totally profited off of like giving out a story about being in there with her because I needed money so bad. I got out. I had no money. Like I had left Tess with like what would have been like three months of rent and like food and stuff like to keep our apartment going and stuff. She blew through it in like two days, of course. So like I got an eviction notice. I had nowhere to go. Like I needed money so bad. I, I, I had nowhere to turn. And so of course, like, and I'm sorry, Lindsay Lohan, I shouldn't have done that. I hate that I did that, but I did. And, and here's uh, her interview about Lindsay from 2010. Did you know right away when she arrived? Oh, they were playing the news in there. They, the girls were screaming. Like, it was, it was really insane. It was like from six in the morning on, it was just mayhem that day. It was crazy. Describe it. Was it. Crazy. I mean, it's unreal because, you know, it's already loud in there and it's, you know, you're already dealing with, you know, the fact that, you know, it's cold and it's loud and girls are screaming and stuff like that. But like, they put us on lockdown all day and she came in, she, obviously didn't look happy because it's not a happy feeling. It's very scary. Very, very scary. You so have you to go saw through, her when she came in? Yeah. You have to go through strip searches, body cavity searches. Like, it's not a fun, exp it's not, it's petrifying. 
really is. To say the least. Yeah, kind of get the feeling like these girls are actually like excited and I mean, they're screaming, I love you, Lindsay, and I want to be your girlfriend, and all this. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, the expression on your face, I know. <laughs> and we had heard that there were all kinds of, uh, that she was verbally abused, a lot of cat calls. Oh, I'm sure, just as you, I was. Did you witness any of that? I didn't witness any of that, no. But, um, and I think for the most part, she did have a deputy kind of monitoring her area as best as possible, because the only time that, a name that comes out is for their one hour a day, but they can walk around wherever. Yeah, I mean, you're locked up in a cell, but they can come up to your cell, and like, I like I would have girls come up to my cell door and just stare at me during their hour. Just, and you, there's nothing you can do. Like, they're not supposed to, but the deputies are watching over how Part many. of Alexis's probation agreement was that she would stay sober, but she couldn't manage that for long. She and Tess were shooting black tar heroin, and by the end of 2010, Alexis got caught and was faced with prison time or rehab. On December 9th, the day before she was scheduled to appear with her family at a Millions of Milkshakes in the Culver City Mall, she was sentenced to a year at the Soba Rehab Facility, a Shishi Malibu rehab where she was offered a scholarship to stay for free. After Alexis was shipped off, Tess continued to use. Then in January of 2011, Andrea alerts the media that Tess, who's a mere 93 pounds, checked herself into the same rehab facility as Alexis, which is an absolutely batshit idea to put two codependent using buddies in the same rehab. Everyone knows you shouldn't even put two twins in the same elementary school class for their own good. What idiot in that rehab thought this was a valid plan? Well, duh, it was a bad idea, and after a month, Tess checks herself out early, which causes a rift between her and Alexis for a bit. Then the next year in January 2012, Tess gets arrested for possession and ends up in rehab again, this time a much less shishi place in Pasadena. Alexis, in the meantime, gets sober and meets her now husband in AA when she was 20 and he was 35, which... I'm just gonna move along. It's none of my never mind. My opinion doesn't need to be voiced on record on everything, okay? Just gonna scoot boot onto the next little point. So, Alexis gets sober, but when she gets out, no one else around her is. Here's Alexis talking about that on an episode of her podcast where she reunites with Tess Gabby and her mother while a family therapist moderates. When I went into treatment, um, it was really hard because I felt like I was going at it alone because everybody else was still getting loaded. Everybody else was still getting loaded and the same dysfunctionality was taking place where I was trying to constantly rescue and shame Tess. If you really loved me, you'd get sober. Why aren't you getting sober? Why can't you get sober for me? If I can do, do it, why this? can't you? I remember this. I had to make an amends to her. It mm. was like the most... It's a big part of recovery. <laughs> Start crying. It was like the most powerful thing because she continued to get loaded for like two years after I got sober. And we were through thick and through thin like Take a tissue. <laughs> <laughs> Take a tissue. These uh, these two were like gas and fire. Yeah, but like know? thicker. Like we had been through yeah. everything. So, so much, much together. Together. Yeah. So much together. So 
you know, uh, I, I had kept trying to get Tess to get sober, get sober, get sober. And I kept putting her into treatment centers when she was not ready. <laughs> I was just, yeah. She was not all ready. I wasn't done. She was not done. Mm -hmm. And um, I called Bob Forrest, who is a mentor of mine and just an all-around amazing guy. And he's got like 20-plus years sober. Wait, can we just interject here that I had tried to hire a Navy SEAL team to go in and extract well, her. So you all worked really hard. It was like to, an army to, against yeah, me. It was like an to army get better. Against. So what, Except me. when was the... I sat on the sidelines. Yeah. Tell well, me about the, the pivotal point. When I was done? When were you done? I was going to die is what it comes down to. It was like a life or death thing for me and I was finally just tired. You know, I just didn't want to do it anymore. Who did it you just, call? My dad. You called your dad. Mm -hmm. He stayed out of it for most of it. Mm -hmm. And then finally I was just like, hey, I'm ready. I'm done. And he picked me up and he flew me to Wisconsin. Or he drove me to Wisconsin and I detoxed in the back of his car. Wow. And um, here I am. Yeah. Yay. I think that. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think that Bob's impact really played a role because yeah. what happened was Bob, we Tessa's dad wanted to intervene. He called um, myself and my mom and said we need help Tess mm -hmm. you know and we're like okay again what are we gonna do my mom's hiring the Navy SEAL <laughs> not kidding not kidding not kidding we're gonna get her out of that we're gonna tent. Get her you out. have connections yes yeah, she does in other words. <laughs> she does so she's she's going on this whole thing I called Bob I'm like Bob we've got to do an intervention we've got they're gonna go in the there and Navy get her the Navy SEALs are gonna get her and, and Bob goes no you're not he goes you are here to do nothing except for to apologize for all of the times that you forced her into sobriety when she wasn't ready, when you tried to take away the one thing that kept all of the pain away when mm -hmm. she wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. And we sat at that table and he goes, and at the end you may offer her treatment and if she's not ready, you will ask her to lunch next week. And I said, okay. She came in, she was tweaking 80 pounds. I was like, oh, oh my God, I'm looking at a skeleton who's like, she couldn't even eat. She was just like tweaking, like just twitching and could not, function and could not but I had one moment with her <laughs> eye to eye and I was able to make like a real immense like a real immense to her for all all of it mm. she just cried and I cried <laughs> and I held her it was funny because I was probably like 200 pounds and she was 80 <laughs> <laughs> so it was like I was hugging a stick <laughs> with my big old belly, uh -huh. my big pregnant that belly, and my big very body. feeling tender. It moments. was, it was, and I felt like, and because Bob always says, if you want to be, if the the person that's always harping on you and griping on you isn't going to be the person that you call when you're ready to when you're ready to get sober. They're going to be, you're going to be the last person they call. How is your life different now? My life today, there's mm -hmm. like no comparison at all. My life is very quiet and mellow. I live in a really small town. Um, You're a mom. I'm a mom. Yeah. Um, so crazy. Yeah. <coughs> I can't compare the two. Yeah. yeah. So that sounds very balanced. Mm -hmm. Very healthy. It's very now normal. I do think this clip is very telling as throughout the conversation Alexis does far and away the most talking a running theme on her podcast. There's a moment in the beginning where the therapist turns to Tess for her take, and Alexis just bulldozes. Generally, Alexis seems to have a bit of a protagonist complex, 
even when they're talking about Tess's journey to sobriety, Alexis is somehow the starring character. But by the time this video slash podcast was recorded in 2019, everyone was sober. Tess stayed in Wisconsin and got sober on her own without rehab. She met a guy, had two daughters, and started straight up beekeeping. Like literal beekeeping. She has a little honey making business and according to social media, really enjoys making preserves. She follows Padma Lakshmi and Tom Kalikio on Instagram. She went from heroin in the bling ring to a quiet life of watching Top Chef after putting her kids to bed. I would have loved to included more interviews with her, but there's practically nothing out there after about 2011. Little Gabby also got sober and is now married with a kid. Andrea got sober from alcohol and pot after almost ruining her relationship with Alexis forever. When Alexis got out of rehab, she finally confided in her mother that a family member had sexually assaulted her for years when she was a little girl. Then, when Alexis was eight months pregnant with her first child, she told her mother she didn't want her to be her manager anymore, and seemingly in retaliation, her mother told the rest of the family that she was lying about the molestation. Alexis's husband intervened, and Andrea finally had a come-to-Jesus moment and got help for herself. And of course, the second that happened, she became Reverend Andrea Arlington and decided she was now fully equipped to tell other people how to get their lives together. This also became Alexis's path when she studied to become a drug and alcohol addiction counselor and told Vice.com in 2013 that her long-term goal was to become the next Dr. Drew. Because of course you wouldn't expect her to quietly help people as a private citizen. Reverend Andrea and Alexis have even created an online self-help course available for purchase. I'll let them tell you a little bit about it. Hi, I'm Andrea. And I'm Alexis. And you might remember us from our reality show, Pretty Wild. Or the numerous epic meltdowns that I had on national television, which now have become viral memes. The first one that comes to mind is the Nancy Jo sales call. Nancy Jo, this is Alexis Myers. So how did we do it? Like, how did we get to this point now where we have successful businesses and have really created this big and beautiful life for ourselves and, and repaired our relationship and um, you know the ripple effects that have taken place in our family has been remarkable since I entered recovery nine years ago. So that's why we're here today to talk to you guys about an amazing program called Life Reset, how to recover from reality. Yes. And we certainly have had to recover from a pretty heinous reality. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> um, we're so excited about this course. Often people ask me for one-on-one -on -one counseling or coaching and I just don't have the space in my life to do it, which is why we decided to do this because everybody deserves to have access to really healing and to getting down to the basics and to stop using band-aids in our lives and to really, really be able to heal in an authentic way. The fundamentals of our recovery are getting down to our belief systems because our belief systems dictate our thoughts, our thoughts dictate our words, our words become our actions, which become our habits, which become our reality. So the Life Reset program is a four-week course. Each week there's a set of modules that corresponds to a certain set of belief systems. 
we're diving in deep to what these belief systems are and helping you change them and so you can create the life of your wildest dreams. In Alexis's quest to become the next Dr. Drew, she's done tons of interviews for different websites and TV shows, and in most of the ones I've seen, she doesn't shy away from talking about the bling ring. And I get that to some degree. It's integral in her sobriety journey, and she purports that she's taken full responsibility and made amends. And I think she has. To a point but I also think she finds a way to make everything a little less her fault. Like, she's very quick to point out that it was Tess who introduced her to Nick. It was Tess who upset her the night of the Orlando Bloom robbery, which made Alexis drink and use to excess. It was Nick who drove the car to Orlando Bloom's house. At this point, You'd hope that as someone whose whole career is centered around taking full responsibility for things, she wouldn't need to parse the details so much and could just say, yeah, I participated, the details don't matter, it was wrong. It was irrelevant whether I wore $29 BB heels or Louboutins to court because those details don't change the fact that I was using and it clouded my judgment and I committed a serious crime. And yet, and yet... Her anger towards Nancy Jo Sales and her Vanity Fair article, The Suspect Wore Louboutins, feels almost as fresh as it did in 2010. Over an entire decade, Alexis hasn't stopped calling out Nancy Jo in interviews and social media, calling her a liar, a bad journalist, anti-feminist, and that she uses Alexis to stay relevant. While Nancy Jo hasn't responded publicly about any of it until this year, the 10th anniversary of the publication of the Bling Ring article. And with that, their feud entered the next decade. And we return to our mystery. <laughs> so, on January 18th of this year, Nancy Joe wrote a follow-up article to the suspect for Louboutins for Vanity Fair. In it, she discusses how she actually didn't like being associated with the Nancy Joe, this is Alexis Nyers calling meme, and that over the past 10 years, Alexis has continued to take interviews where she says that Nancy Joe duped her and tried to ruin her life. On January 20th, Alexis retweets the article and tries to begin a public feud with Nancy. She leaks some Instagram DMs between the two of them from the previous summer when Alexis invited Nancy to be on her podcast. But she's very selective in the DMs she shares. Like, some are only half a response from Nancy Joe or Alexis, and she highlights certain parts for emphasis, but it doesn't particularly make sense or prove anything. Alexis has a few sticking points with Nancy Joe. One being that she exploited a drug-addled girl for a hot story and that she presented herself as someone who wanted to help Alexis set the record straight and instead making her look bad. But Nancy Joe didn't know that Alexis was a drug addict. Her producers didn't even know at this point. And I don't believe that Nancy Joe presented herself this way at all. I do believe that Alexis thinks she presented herself this way. I think her lawyer said, someone wants to interview you for Vanity Fair, and her eyes glazed over, and suddenly she was on stage in character shoes and a black slip, singing the name on everybody's lips is gonna be Alexis. 
She was doing a lot of drugs at this time, so it probably felt very real. The thing that makes it ridiculous is for her or her mother or her lawyers to blame Nancy Joe for some kind of bait and switch. Nancy Joe is a low-key icon known for her articles that, among other subjects, analyze celebrity culture. In 2000, her article about Paris Hilton introduced her to America years before her sex tape ever leaked. Her Pussy Posse article about Leonardo DiCaprio and the group of dick swingers he hung around with is legendary. All anyone had to do was ask Jeeves to find out the kind of pieces she wrote and that fluffy profiles on celebrities was not among them. I don't blame Alexis for not doing that legwork, and her mother is basically Marianne Williamson with a lobotomy, so I don't expect that she would think to look into Nancy Joe's repertoire either. I do expect her lawyers to, and if anyone is to blame, it's them. They're the ones who wanted to appear in multiple episodes of her reality show and probably didn't have all her best interests at heart. She says that Nancy Joe duped her lawyers too, but I think the key to what happened here is what Gabby said about the producers of Pretty Wild in their reunion interview. The Nancy Joe thing, Alexis would have never taken that interview had it not been for our crew who told us to take the Vanity Fair uh, interview and that they were going to portray Alexis in this great light. I think Nancy Joe was straightforward with what she was going to do, and the producers knew exactly who she was. And they convinced Alexis to do it because it would be great publicity for the show. Finally, the biggest stick in Alexis's craw is the Louboutins of it all. Here's Alexis on her podcast in an episode dedicated to Nancy Joe. So Nancy Joe and I got into it on Instagram DMs and she basically called me a sexist liar, which I find really comical. Um, but I know so many of you guys are really interested in this. Um, it is kind of like a juicy scoop. I'm not going to lie. So what I decided to do is I'm going to put up this conversation plus I'm going to put up the court records. I'm going to put up a picture of me in the shoes that I was actually wearing. I'm going to put up a um, comment from a rep at Louboutin who knows that the shoes that I'm not wearing, despite what she says, the shoes that I am wearing are not Louboutins. And I'm going to put up the police records from everything that they took in my house, which there are no Louboutins to be found on that piece of paper. So all of this stuff is going to be up on my Patreon and also on my Instagram stories for you guys to check out this week. Just because, like I said, the truth is on my side. Now the problem is, Nancy Joe has said publicly she was wrong about Alexis wearing Louboutins on that day in court. Nancy Joe says Alexis wore them the day before and she misremembered it. It's a mistake, but it happens. Alexis contends that the Louboutins just didn't exist. But Nancy Joe says in the DMs that they discussed the Louboutins in their interview, and Alexis said she bought them with money she made at Jamba Juice. Now she says that they never existed, and she can prove it with these court records of what was taken from her house. The problem is, though, when the cops came to all the Bling Ringers' houses, they had a list of stolen property that they were allowed to seize. They only took stuff from that list but the celebrity victims weren't even sure about all the stuff that was stolen in their house, so if they didn't report the Louboutins, the police wouldn't have taken them. So, 
The police report to me is completely moot. Plus, the most damning evidence of all is from episode 3 of Pretty Wild. The following clip is a scene where Tess and Alexis are picking out outfits to wear on a group date that night with a football player. I'm excited. What are you going to wear? Um, I was thinking this skirt. It's like super sexy. It's tight on my butt. Oh, it looks really cute. I mean, it's cute. It's more casual. Or this skirt. You know, I want to look sexy. It's a little bit shorter than the other one. What shoes are you going to wear? I'm going to wear my Levitons. Perfect. Alexis Nyers in the bedroom with the Louboutins. Also, in episode one, Tess comes home after being out all night carrying a pair of red bottom shoes in her hands. The thing is, this doesn't even prove that they were stolen from a celebrity. In Alexis's book, she says how men would take her and Tess shopping and buy them thousands of dollars worth of clothes. It could have come from that. Who cares? Why does any of it matter at this point? Alexis thinks it matters because this false reporting made her look bad and hurt her case. But she says nothing of the fact of how it made her look that she went to Mexico to party in the middle of her case against the counsel of her lawyers. I think that makes her look a hell of a lot worse than wearing Louboutins. So at the end of December, Tess Instagrams a quote that says, Please do not believe everything you read, because sometimes someone else's version of reality is much different than your own. What is she possibly referring to? Well, after a little googling, I find that Alexis had come out with a book that I've been referencing called Recovering from Reality, the same name as her podcast. In the book, and in a lot of Alexis's interviews, she seems to throw Tess under the bus as a bad influence on her, and mentions all these bad things that Tess had supposedly done when she was using, despite them being apropos of nothing. Like, when they were preteens, Tess lifted up Alexis's shirt in front of boys. Or another time when Alexis went on a date with Neil Brennan, Dave Chappelle's writing partner, and Tess ran up his tab. There's tons of asides like that. She ends her book saying, I love Tess and her daughter so much, but I have also had to realize that we may never have the relationship I want. Our history might be too dark and too deep for us to ever heal together. When we build a relationship on a lifetime worth of unhealthy patterns, both parties need to be willing to dissect and address those old ways of being. And if you aren't able to unbraid the trauma bond, you might have to let it go. If you don't, you may be doomed to repeat it with someone else. Even recently, I found myself playing the same games and feeling the same feelings I always experienced with Tess. I would help and then feel hurt. And it's not Tess or my fault. It's just the way we've always interacted with each other. The difference is that I am healthy enough today to know that I want to change. Someone's logged a few hours in therapy. Meanwhile, when this book comes out, Tess is a private citizen, very pregnant, it's the holidays, and then she gets hit with someone exposing intimate details about her life that the public didn't know before this. And 
And another thing I noticed is Alexis's publisher. I was curious about the fact that this was only available on Amazon, but it wasn't self-published. The company was Launchpad Publishing, and on their About Me page on their website, says that they, quote, write and publish books designed to get you wherever you want to go, whether that's appearing on TV shows, speaking on stages, attracting more business, or leaving a legacy for your children. I feel like Alexis was like, check, 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 all of the above. They list a few different services, but basically you pay them and they write or help you write your book and then publish it and market it for you. So, you know, it wasn't exactly Harper Collins telling Alexis she had to publish this book during the late stages of Tess's pregnancy during the most stressful time of year. By the same token, I can grant Alexis that it's reasonable that she wanted to get this out in time for the holiday season, but also, are tons of people using the Bling Ring Girls book as stocking stuffers? IDK, IDK, maybe they are, maybe they are. This is just a detail that you can use to color the world. As detectives, we must take all angles into consideration. Okay, then. At the end of January, Alexis starts this feud with Nancy Joe, and after scrolling back into Tessa's Instagram, the first photo Nancy Joe hearts is from February 1st. My guess? Tess heard about this and reached out to Nancy Joe, and they commiserated over DM. Everything calms down for a bit until August 2nd, when Alexis posts the photo of herself, Gabby, and Tess for Sister Day. Something went on in the comments, and I didn't see them because I didn't follow Alexis, and she deleted them all by the time I was alerted. But I found some evidence from another random Instagram who explained that apparently after Alexis posted the photo, people commented on it, basically saying, if Tess was your sister and you love her so much, why were you so mean and accusatory in your book? And why would you tell such intimate details of a person's life, especially during their active addiction? Then little sis Gabby commented, quote, pages and pages back to every commenter, saying terrible things about Tess, and basically expecting Tess to come onto Alexis's page and admit that everything she said in her book and everything Gabby said in her comments was true. Then everyone unfollowed everyone. And on August 4th, Tess posted a glowing Earth Mama photo of herself with her newborn baby with a caption that's kind of long, but I'm going to read it in full because Alexis has gotten a lot of stage time in these last couple episodes, and I think it's fair to hear what Tess has to say. <clears throat> Thank you all so much for your love and support. I love all the kindness. We need more of that shit in this world. After all the chaos that has transpired over the last two days, I just wanted to take a second to say I don't owe anyone anything, especially when it's being demanded of me on someone else's terms. Things that transpired in my active addiction many, many years ago are no longer serving purpose in my life. I have made many mistakes. We all clearly know this. I have apologized for many of them. I have owned many, if not all of them. I did this on my own, on my own terms, and in my own way not because I was asked by others to do so. I've made my amends and spoken what I wanted to speak. If you haven't noticed, it's not typically my style to speak publicly or call people out on stuff. Thank you to those of you who see things for what they are. 
for holding space to see both sides. Everyone should be able to speak their piece and say what they need to say, but we must always remember that there are two sides of every story. Some things we have done in our past are better kept to ourselves. We don't have to expose to the entire world every mistake we've made along the way. I want to wash my hands clean of this. Life is too short, man. I wish everyone peace of mind and health in their lives. I am complete and whole. These topics no longer serve me in my life. Thank you. Listen, at the end of the day, I trust the person who moved to Wisconsin to live a quiet life more than the person who stayed in Hollywood who still wants to make it big. Only because I am also trying to make it in LA, so I know aspirations for success in Hollywood should definitely be classified as a mental disorder in the DSM-5. Either way, I have compassion for everyone involved, and Alexis is entitled to her side of her story. But I think it would be best if she would finally just put the bling ring to bed and get on with her life. Sisters, sisters, there were never such devoted sisters. Never had to so, there you have it. The kind of, sort of, half mystery solved. And I think we can all admit we're in no way better for it. But hey, the West Coast is burning, and we're on the precipice of the collapse of our democracy as we know it. We deserve 40 minutes of respite from the stress, don't we? And that's exactly what you'll get as we continue Season 4. So, you're invited to come back next week. We've got a table, and I've put you on the list. For Lay Do You Remember This. Lay Do You Remember This is researched, written, narrated, and edited by me, Dara Lane. If you aren't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave a rating and review. You can follow updates on the pod on Instagram and Facebook. We also have a private Facebook group you can join and some early 2000s Spotify playlists I've put together. You can find those links on the show's Instagram. And please, if you like the podcast, share it tell your friends. It's true what they say. It takes a village to make me famous. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please email this at gmail.com. Girls, time for your Adderall. Get a goo.